You're listening to The Game Changers. This is David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement, and this is Episode 2, The Magic in the Cards. The first possible recorded mention of a game played with individually printed flat objects is from the Tang Dynasty in the 9th century, right around the time when printing was invented. It describes a princess playing a leaf game with the family of her husband. The first definite reference to a card game is from 1294. It's a report of the arrest of two people caught playing cards, as well as the confiscation of the woodblocks they'd used to make the cards. Clearly, even then, authorities did not look kindly on those seemingly innocent bits of pasteboard. The evolution of what we in the West think of as the standard deck of cards is a story unto itself, and its place in our culture is undeniable. But although you can play literally hundreds of different games with a regular old deck of cards, you could never use it to play our first game changer. To put things in context, though, we need to categorize the kinds of games you can play with cards. The first card game I remember playing was in grade one, and it was Crazy Eights. My teacher, Mrs. Basil, let me and Lauren Bloomberg play it because we'd finished our other work. Games like Crazy Eights and Uno are races to see who can get rid of all their cards first. These are called shedding games. Conversely, other childhood games like War and all its relatives, where we're trying to collect all the cards, those are called catch-and-collect games. My mom was a big fan of Rummy and Canasta, so I grew up playing those with her. Games like them are about laying down certain patterns of cards, mainly straights in a suit, or three of a kind, four of a kind, and so on which score points, and whoever gets to 100 or 200 or 500 points first over a series of rounds is the winner. Those are called matching games. As a kid, I certainly knew about poker and blackjack and other comparing games where players compare their hands at the end of a round, and victory goes to the player with the best hand, according to some criteria. But my parents weren't gamblers, so we didn't play them at home, and my study of them definitely remained academic for many years. I'm still pretty risk-averse now that I come to think of it. In my university residence, the two main ways to fit in were sitting around drinking beer and sitting around playing euchre and or bridge. And uh, I just couldn't get used to the taste of beer, so my choice was clear. These games are called trick-taking games, because each game is played in a series of mini-rounds called tricks, where each player plays one card from their hand, and the player who plays the best card wins the trick. Later still, when I became a teacher, students introduced me to fishing games like Scopa and Casino, that's with two S's where players capture cards on the table by playing other cards from their hands, earning points for grabbing various card combos. Ironically, Go Fish is not a fishing game. It's a catch-and-collect game. 
Scopa and Casino were and are apparently incredibly popular in certain parts of Toronto, and yet I had never heard of them. So the cliche that I learned more from my students than they from me certainly applied there. Just to recap, every card game ever invented falls into one, or sometimes more, of the following categories. Shedding games, catch-and-collect games, matching games, comparing games, trick-taking games, and fishing games. Every game ever invented, that is, until 1991. Card collecting was something I definitely did do as a child. Growing up in Toronto in the 1970s, when the Maple Leafs' glory days were only a recent memory, and the Blue Jays brought Major League Baseball to town, one could hardly be a kid without collecting hockey and baseball cards. I still have all my old hockey cards, including a Wayne Gretzky rookie card, which apparently is worth at least $500 if I can get it properly appraised. All in all, I have about 2,000 hockey cards, which I call, ironically, my retirement fund because I, I can't think I would ever sell them. Later on, one of the Book of Lists books had a list of the rarest baseball cards, which got me interested in the history of modern sports card collecting. It started with the promotional baseball cards that helped to sell cigarettes in the late 19th century. My favorite was the story of Honus Wagner, the Pittsburgh Pirates Hall of Fame slugger from the first decade of the 1900s, and also, as it happens, a fervent non-smoker. He demanded that one company shred all his cards because he didn't want to be a part of selling cigarettes to kids. And now his card is one of the most valuable and sought after of all time. When I was a kid, some kids played with their hockey cards. They played shootsies or flipsies and other such recess games, and some of my schoolmates were good enough to grow their collections that way, but I was risk-averse, remember? Plus, I didn't want to get my cards dirty by throwing them on the ground. And as for taping them to the spokes of your bike so you could make motorcycle sounds as you rode around, well, that was just crazy talk. No, I traded my way up to complete sets, slowly and painfully. Sports cards were for collecting, reading the stats and cartoons on the back, and holding up to your nose and sniffing to get that delicious whiff of bubblegum. Aside from those schoolyard gambling amusements, you couldn't use them to play a proper card game like the ones I talked about before. In researching for this episode, I found only one example of a game that used sports cards. It was called the Baseball Card All-Star Game from 1987, in which you used your own baseball cards and their stats to simulate a game. The reason there haven't been more games like this may be the business model it's based on, because you're dependent on your customers buying other people's products, the cards, but they only have to buy your product, the game, once. No. Instead of cards, modern sports tabletop games have tended to use tables of statistics and outcome charts. The first one was called the APBA Pro Baseball Game of 1951, or APBA, which expanded to football in 1958, golf in 1962, and hockey, finally, in 1993. APBA's main competitor was Stratomatic Baseball. Easier to say. 
first released in 1962, and it's become so identified with baseball that it's exhibited in Cooperstown. Although there were versions of Stratomatic for football, hockey, and basketball editions too. Hobby game company Avalon Hill got into the act in 1971 with Status Pro Baseball, moving into other sports just as everyone else did. Interestingly, all of those three games used cards to summarize player data, but each used a proprietary format, which prevented any crossover play. And since they all provided complete team and league sets and update kits with their games, there was no need for trading or collecting. So... It wasn't until the dawn of the 1990s that someone had the idea of making a game which harnessed all the obsessiveness of card collecting to all the obsessiveness of another subculture. Perhaps, surprisingly, that subculture turned out to be not sports, but fantasy fiction. Many people who base their adult lives around the study of mathematics also tend to love puzzles, games, and sleight-of-hand magic. People like me. This is because all three of those pursuits involve mathematical concepts, such as combinatorics, which is the study of different ways of counting things, topology, the study of the properties of surfaces, and, dead giveaway here, game theory. Game theory in mathematics isn't about how to win at Monopoly or Risk. A game, in the mathematical sense, is any situation where you have two or more agents, or players, who have to choose from among several options, resulting in an outcome where each player receives a payoff in some currency, usually money, but not always. Payoffs can also be negative, which means the player loses something. Game theory comes up a lot in microeconomics, for example, which I studied at university, where the game is the market for a particular good and the players are individual sellers. Think of gasoline and gas stations. Each gas station can, in theory, set its own price. The lower they set it, the more customers they attract away from other sellers, but then those sellers can lower their prices too. And besides, lowering your price also lowers your profit. The pedigree of math students and professors who also invented games is long and illustrious. Charles Dodgson, better known to the world as Lewis Carroll, spent his adult life lecturing in mathematics at Oxford University. And aside from penning a few weird books for children which attracted a bit of attention, he designed and published many puzzles and games. Another mathematician, one of the founders of modern game theory, was John Nash. You might have heard of him through the movie A Beautiful Mind. And Nash is also credited with inventing an abstract game called Hex while he was at Princeton University in 1947, which Parker Brothers put out commercially in 1952. John Horton Conway of the University of Cambridge invented the pencil and paper game of Sprouts in 1967, and in 1982 published the two-volume book Winning Ways for Your Mathematical Plays, which is still considered one of the foundational texts of the mathematical basis of two-player games with perfect information. Games of perfect information are games like chess and go, where there's nothing to be hidden away. Conway also invented the field of cellular automata, 
with the Game of Life, which is not to be confused with the much better known commercial version, the Game of Life. University students, whether they study mathematics or not, also tend to have a fair amount of spare time on their hands, not to mention more discretionary income and less parental supervision than they've ever had before in their lives, which also makes them prime candidates for diving into extracurricular pursuits. Chess, bridge, and later on, risk, diplomacy, and Dungeons and Dragons all found lifelong fans in university dorms, clubs, and empty classrooms. And so it was that in August of 1992, two mathematics grad students and aspiring game designers were driving across the United States from Pennsylvania to Oregon to meet with a fledgling game publisher. The students, Mike Davis and Rick Garfield, had designed a game called RoboRally. Davis had been acting as their agent and had managed to generate enough interest from a publisher. The publisher's name was Wizards of the Coast, and Wizards of the Coast set up a meeting to meet with them to talk about making the game. The meeting turned out to be a pizza dinner. RoboRally was, and is, it's still in print, a great racing game where players use cards to secretly program the actions of their robot minions around a modular board, which is strewn with conveyor belts, lasers, pushing walls, all sorts of deadly things. RoboRally was chaotic, fun, and had immense replayability because the boards could be put together in thousands of different ways. Now, variation, novelty, and open-endedness in games were important to Garfield, who had grown up loving classics like Cosmic Encounter and especially Dungeons and Dragons. He'd also been fascinated with the idea behind Stratomatic Baseball, although his utter lack of interest in the sport precluded any actual playing of it. Even earlier than that, as a child, Garfield had used games to bridge the language barrier when he was the son of an adventurous architect working in Bangladesh and Nepal. Garfield would carry cards and marbles around and bring them out of the drop of a hat to make new friends with other kids. Now Garfield was 19 and wanting to distill the complexity of Cosmic Encounter down into something more approachable. Garfield invented a game called Five Magics. At the back of his mind was the idea of a game where the deck of cards that all players drew from could be altered by players switching cards in and out of it between rounds. In Five Magics, there were five types of terrain cards, each of which generated a different color of energy. Mountains, for example, generated red aggression, swamps, black ambition, islands, blue rumination, plains, white orderliness, forests, green growth. He was always tinkering with it. Sometimes the game had a board, sometimes it was all cards-based. But Five Magics never survived Garfield's playtesting, the ideas behind it stuck in the back of his mind. Meanwhile, RoboRally had survived playtesting and was now Davis's and Garfield's calling card. Wizards was interested, but there was a problem. Not with the rules or the gameplay, but the components. Because although RoboRally could be played with standard components from American games of the time, like little plastic pawns and cardboard-mounted maps and cardboard tiles... Garfield and Davis wanted little metal miniatures for the robots and clear plastic pieces for the other components. 
Such luxuries were far above Wizard of the Coast's ability to supply in 1992. Wizard CEO Peter Adkinson, whose day job was a systems analyst for Boeing, suggested Garfield come up with a cheaper game first, something small and portable which could play quickly, a game that could go over well at conventions, and then they would use the money they would make from that to do RoboRally. Maybe Garfield could design a card game. So Garfield went to work. The first thing he tried was based on Safecracker, a game he designed in 1985 and then abandoned. But that didn't turn out. Then he remembered five magics. On a family hike outside Portland, Garfield had his life-changing moment. What if each player had their own deck, and each deck was different and therefore required a different strategy? He literally stopped in his tracks, transfixed and boggled by the possibilities. Then he developed a backstory of two wizards, which he called Planeswalkers, trying to kill each other by reducing their opponent's life points to zero or forcing their opponent to run out of spells. Each wizard had a spell book in their hand, their deck, consisting of spells, which would be the cards. Some spells caused damage directly. Others summoned monsters, which would fight for them, and they would cause damage round after round unless defeated. Other cards would mess with the other player's deck by forcing the opponent to discard cards. In order to cast a spell, i.e. play a card, a player had to be able to generate enough mana, which was the word for magical resources. So each card had a mana cost on it, which was generated by cards, which Garfield called lands. Here, Garfield was able to bring in the idea of resource-generating terrain from five magics. Aside from playing cards from your hand, cards on the table, which were usually the creatures you had summoned, could be activated or tapped to unleash more damage or other kinds of mayhem. So think back to the games and categories I listed at the beginning of the episode. Does this game sound like Crazy Eights or Rummy or Bridge? No. This is something totally original, a genre onto itself. Garfield added on the idea that cards could be bought and traded between players And it seemed like an amazing concept for a game that fit with Atkinson's parameters. From a game design standpoint, however, there were some pretty major obstacles. First, how do you make every single card good in some sense? That's a problem because too much variety in card quality would lead to some cards, the weaker ones, becoming shunned with no one wanting to play them or trade for them. The other problem was how do you prevent what Garfield called the rich kid syndrome and what has since come to be called a pay-to-win strategy, whereby simply buying lots of cards gives you the best chance of getting the awesome rare cards that can't be beat. Garfield's first solution to the pay-to-win problem was what he called the ante, a term he borrowed from poker. So players would each set aside a card from their deck before the game started, 
and that card would become the prize if their opponent beat them. And their opponent would gain that card permanently if they won the match. Garfield saw this as an invisible hand of the market kind of mechanism, which would tend to balance out disparities in deck quality. But this option never became popular because players didn't like risking their cards like that, and some people at Wizards of the Coast worried that it would lead to the game requiring a gambling license. As to the former issue, that of keeping the cards relatively balanced, Garfield knew that the only way to make that happen would be to playtest, playtest, playtest. So by this time, he'd returned to the University of Pennsylvania to continue his PhD in math, so Garfield happened to have a large pool of potential playtesters all too happy to help out. He started with his friend Barry Reich, whom he knew from the UPenn Bridge Club. Garfield later recalled that they'd started around 10 o'clock one evening to play in the University of Pennsylvania Astronomy Lounge, and the room didn't have any windows, and they played until what they thought was 3 a.m., until they went outside and realized they'd actually been playing all night because the sun was coming up. Starting from there, he kept bringing other people into the fold, giving them decks of cards and telling them to have at it. The cards were badly Xeroxed and had bad art and symbols on them. This was the age before clip art. He explained the rules, and it soon began to consume the lives of everybody involved. Even some of the junior faculty got involved. Some just play-tested the decks, reporting back on which cards seemed over- or underpowered, or situations which required clarification in the rules. Others actually worked with Garfield on the cards themselves to think of new ideas, and over the coming months, the initial set of 120 cards, called Magic Alpha, came together. Garfield was fascinated as he watched the economics of trading evolving. It happened exactly as he had hoped. Playtesters evolved strategies for their decks and then went around to other playtesters looking for particular cards which would maximize these strategies. At first, players had no concept of which cards were better than others. In fact, some of the early cards were so overpowered, they were eventually phased out of the game and became so rare that they sell today for tens of thousands of dollars, even though they could never be used in an actual game because collectors just want to be able to brag that they have a Black Lotus. Garfield went back to Portland with Magic Alpha and Wizards of the Coast were very, very pleased indeed. The game worked... And it was infinitely expandable, just the way Garfield wanted. Wizards agreed to publish Magic Alpha under the name Mana Clash because their lawyers told them that calling it just magic was too broad and too vague to trademark. But Garfield really wanted magic as the name, so the lawyers told them that if they added a subtitle, they would be able to get away with it. And thus was born Magic the Gathering, the very first collectible card game, or CCG. Our first game changer. That was part one of episode two of The Game Changers. In part two, I'll tell you about what happened when magic hit the stores. I'm David Weiss for The Daily Worker Placement. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And don't flip that table. <laughs>